You're listening to GP Works, the podcast for and about general practice from the Irish College of General Practitioners. I'm Aileen Amara and with me on this episode is Dr. Edel McGinnity, GP at the Riverside Medical Centre in Mulhuddard in Dublin 15, where we are now. Dr. McGinnity, welcome to GP Works. Thanks for having me, Aileen. I asked you in the podcast because I read your article in Forum in March 2022 and then there was a follow-up with Brian uh, Osborne and Aoife O'Sullivan about children's mental health services in this country and you're in a community that has a wide range of medical and social needs. Let's start by describing where we are and the community we're in and the practice. Okay, so we're in the Mulhuddard area, which is part of the Greater Blanchardstown area where there has been an explosion in the population over the last 30 to 40 years. And unfortunately, services have not at all kept up with that. Um, The area includes a number of quite disadvantaged electoral divisions and there are much higher rates of all causes of death and illness, mental health problems. A big study in the UK showed that there could be up to four times the rate of serious mental health problems in in children in areas of most disadvantage. And we are very much at the coalface of that. Because with that big increase in population um, is a very skewed demographic here where we have much more young people than would be average. The average population, I think, in the country under 18 is about 25%, but 33% of our patients are under 18. So we're very much at the sharp end of um, mental health problems. Like I said, there are much higher rates in areas of disadvantage. And the inverse care law, that principle of uh, the people who need the most uh, health services are least likely to get it, prevails here. Because health services are distributed according to numbers. But if you have only one CAMS team or psychologist for every thousand patients, no matter what part of the country you're in, which is how it works at the moment... Uh, What happens then is in an area like ours where there may be three or four times the level of mental health problems, uh, you are effectively offering people half or a quarter of the service because you still only have the same number of professionals providing the services to those people. So that's why GPs in in disadvantaged areas and GPs at the deep end who, who work there are all very exercised about this. And it's one of the reasons why it's very hard to get GPs to work in these areas, because if you've got a much higher volume of people with psychosocial problems, it's incredibly time consuming. And then not only is it time consuming in consultation, Um, as you're dealing with the problems and because the patients are coming back to you constantly because they can't get a service but you then spend vast amounts of time out of clinical time trying to get them seen doing forms for multiple services you know like a harry potter owl throwing letters everywhere hoping to get people seen um, so it's one of the, it's, you know, and there, there can be a lot of risk attached to it. There are child protection concerns much more frequently in areas like this that go together with all of these other psychosocial causes of, of problems. Um, and so that's why it's very, there are not enough GPs in these areas. Um, and it's, it's just the, the work is much more complex in respect of that, especially when in a practice like this, you've got much higher rates of smaller children. So that, you know, we, we, we do see. And, and because I've been here so long, I think the reason I'm so exercised about children's mental health problems is I've been in practice in this practice for 28 years. So kids that I have vaccinated, I have watched what we sometimes call the slow car crash of those kids, you know, starting. Sometimes they're expelled from crash, actually. But generally, you might meet them in third or fourth class causing a bit of trouble in school. Then you'll see them again because you won't have got a service for them when you've looked for it. 
the family will move on. You'll get a, another crisis when they're maybe 13 or 14, getting into weed. Later teens years, they'll start getting into trouble, trouble with the law, maybe with drugs. And then they end up in the criminal justice system where it costs approximately €80,000 uh, a year to keep them. Money that if it had been available to pay a psychologist when they were in fourth class would have prevented the whole thing. And so I've watched kids that I have seen as small kids. I've seen them go to prison. I've seen them get involved in serious drugs and I've seen them die. And, you know, that makes it, you know, something that I, that's one of the reasons I feel so strongly about this, because you can see the windows of opportunity to prevent the trajectory that ends up in, in really serious outcomes. And it's very disheartening not to be able to support families. But it, and it has a very big impact as well because, they, uh, because they're not getting services. They're coming back in crisis all the time. And, you know, one of the downsides of, of practice in, in, a, in a disadvantaged area is that you can be managing crises a lot of the time. And it makes it harder then to do the preventive work, to do the CDM, to do all the things that will ultimately help people's health. But if you're busy firefighting some dreadful situation that has cropped up, um, you end up doing that instead of doing the, the work that might be uh, more useful. So, Going back to, I could say, when you see a child very young, even at age four, or as you said, expelled from the crash even and mm-hmm. going on, is you say there's no service for them. So talk me through that. What, what happens? Well, I suppose the... There are there are the statutory HSE services like primary care psychology and speech therapy and OT and, and physio and stuff like that. There's CAMS, there's disability services. Those are all the kind of statutory services. And then there is this um, vast, you know, plethora of other services, all funded by the HSE, NGOs, uh, voluntary organisations, tripping over each other, uh, appearing ad hoc, depending on the community, loads of them in one area, not in another, crisscrossing each other. So there's, 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 a, there's a sort of a very complex um, array of possibilities when you, when you meet a, a distressed child. But, so there are two problems. The first is the overall resourcing of the mental health services, which is only 5.5% in Ireland, whereas the WHO recommends 12%. So there is a profound underfunding. And when you add that inverse care law, in other words, them not being distributed according to the needs of populations, um, the availability of the service is just, you know, it's effectively meaningless. So, for example, primary care psychology in this area is three years. Um, so that's the first problem. It's a so three-year wait. It's a three-year wait. So you end up not referring. I haven't referred a child to primary care psychology for years. So not only is there a three-year wait for the people that are referred, but there are all there's all this unmet need that's never getting referred at all because people just know there's no point. Because a family in crisis, like three years, is meaningless. Yeah. So all all of those um all of those children's services, and then so that's that's one problem is the unavailability due to underfunding. Um, then there's a sort of the thing escalates into absolutely Byzantine levels if there is an element of disability, such as autism or intellectual disability uh, on the child part, together with mental health, because they nearly always do go together. Trying to navigate that is just uh, unbelievably difficult. So that's one problem, you know, very, very, very long wait times that you will probably fill in the forms and send them off. But in the meantime, you've got this family in front of you. So then you have to try and find out, well, which of these local services is going to work for my child that I have in front of me? 
And that's very difficult. And I, I find it hard to believe that after nearly 30 years in this practice, when a, a younger colleague comes in and says, what will I do with this family? It happened just yesterday. I'm there going, I don't know. I don't know who could deal with this. So you have, you have some, if you, like, it's like everything else in this house. If you get in, it's great. If you get in, it's great. It's getting in is the problem. And they're all under-resourced and they all manage, the, the NGOs in particular manage that under-resourcing by um, refining their criteria, being quite exclusionary, but we'll take this age, that age, this problem, that problem. Oh no, we can't deal with that. Um, or they will also close their waiting lists uh, when, when it gets to a certain point so that I think they can then report back to their funders that their maximum waiting list is only four months. Um, I mean, we have, so we've got two very good family therapy services in this area. We've got Bernardo's, we've got Astrobio. Astrobio has been closed for most of my time here uh, because it's it's funded now by Tuzla and given over to Tuzla cases. So it's only when people are really bad that they can get in there. And all the times I could have predicted that, I can't get them a service. The, the, the group that, you know, we find really difficult to get help for is kids between about five and eight with anxiety and school refusal and stuff. We, we really have nobody for them except maybe the family support service. Um, but then you have to sign a Tuzla form and they're very much a Tuzla organisation and people are very intimidated by that and they don't want to get involved in that. Um, so, like, you know, you could, you could bring me in a distressed seven-year-old today, Aileen, and I'd be sitting here at lunchtime saying, where am I going to get this child seen effectively? You know, I mean, just yesterday I saw a really distressed child who's on the disability waiting list. Uh, but has significant anxiety and, you know, has been diagnosed with mild autism, has problems with um, uncontrollable, that stimming behaviour that they use to kind of comfort themselves, causing lots of problems for her in school. But she's on the disability waiting list and it's six years for the disability waiting list in this part of North Dublin which I think is one of the worst in the country. I'd love to know exactly how long it is every other word. But that's that's a factor of the fact that we've got far more kids with far more problems in this area. But each defined population has X number. Now, they, they can't get staff for, for our local disability team. But she's on a waiting list that's six years. The other primary care services will say, no, she's on the disability list. We can't see her. She's not bad enough for CAMS. You know, so it's that... That crisscrossing chaos of services that no structure to it um, is what exercises me above all. Um. We'll, we'll add a link to, you know, and, mm. and put up a visual of that map or that map, that the diagram, you know, yeah. the slide that you had in the forum article from last year, which again uh, shows so much of that, like you say, that crisscrossing of all the different yes. services. I suppose the big, the big question I can put to you uh, uh, from your perspective and the level of experience you have as a GP in the health service, why is mental health so underfunded, do you think? Um, well, it's not, it's not a sexy problem. Nobody's going to ring Joe Duffy and say, my child is kicking the house down and I can't cope. Um, the other problem is that putting resources into it is a very long game. 
So, you know, if you were to if you were to wave a wand and, and magically provide services to all the five and six year old kids having problems in this area now, you won't see the benefit mm. of that until another fifteen or twenty years when the politicians making those decisions are not. And that's gone. the political system where cutting a ribbon with your name and putting your yeah, name on a plaque yeah. is much more attractive than like you say, the the, the lack of an institution. And, and I, I mean I think that I I would hope that that's gonna change because yeah. there, in the last five to ten years there's been a lot more evidence about the impact of adverse childhood events on physical health as well as mental health and there's a lot more new you know in the news about cams and about you know the waiting lists and that is that not having any impact on funding and any impact on political support yes i think it is but i think that um i think that they're having a lot of trouble staffing those teams um and I think that, that, you know, there is a political will to try and move up. I mean, like I said, my local disability team is is down by 40% of its staff. And, you know, there is a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you have a very busy team uh, with an overwhelming workload, people don't want to work in those areas. So yeah. it comes back to that idea of resourcing according to need. Um, why they're not resourced, I think, is that people, they, they, they can't find staff to work in them. But um, from my perspective in, in Northwest Dublin, a lot of it is to do with under-resourcing according to, to the level of need. But what I was going to say, uh, what I meant to say earlier, what I was getting to was that um, not only do I see those kids arrive in problems maybe with adult mental health problems and criminality and sometimes drug use, but there is now this huge evidence that adverse events in childhood create physical health problems like the diabetes, like the heart disease and cancer that are so much higher in these areas. I mean, there was a recent study by the ESRI pointing out that the death rates are over twice as high in areas of disadvantage. And the popular societal narrative about that is, oh, it's it's lifestyle. It's that they're not, you know, they're smoking and they're drinking and they're eating too much pizza and so on. But that's only a small part of it. And a lot of it is to do with this childhood poverty. So I would be hoping that as that evidence, which is coming out now all the time, becomes more, you know, it is the whole health service that suffers when you don't put money into early childhood and resources and, and everything that those kids need. Um, so I think that might change the, 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 the emphasis on, on, you know, away from physical health problems towards mental health problems. But sure, of course, here in general practice, there is no distinction because we see the absolute impact of mental health and social problems on physical health um, and it, it's an artificial division so it all needs to be resourced all services need to be resourced in particularly for children you know that it's it that is um you know there's a, there, an example of what happened there towards the end of the pandemic and i think it's still the case is that they withdrew the other apart from general practice who are you know very much the, the, the port of call for families in distress the other pillar of the health service for early childhood is public health nursing. They are absolutely amazing and they are picking up lots of families in, 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 in uh, difficulty and getting into, trying to get interventions. But they were taken from routine childhood uh, health checks recently in many areas because there weren't enough of them and they were pulled over to work with teams that were trying to prevent elderly admissions to hospital, which is an equally laudable thing. But, you know, and then there, there was a sort of a I felt a fairly glib kind of um, response to that was, well, if you're worried about your child, go to your public health nurse. But actually, the critical sort of feature of a lot of people who, who, who are living very complicated lives are they're what we call the unworried unwell. 
They're too busy getting through their day, minding their kids to realise that things are not as they should be. And they don't realise how tough their lives are and what impact it might be having on their kids. And so routine and structured review of those people is so important. So, you know, decisions like that are really retrograde. But, you know, it, it can be a fairly crisis-driven health service sometimes, as we know. But, I mean, it certainly... It is a crisis when you see when you see kids and families, you know, struggling. It's um, it's really hard, and especially for 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 GPs like us working in disadvantage, when you know that in other parts of the city or other parts of the country, they wouldn't be getting that same service because no child, you know, asked to be born in this particular area, you know. So that's how do you keep going? Do you get fed up sometimes? Um, I of course I get fed up. I get very frustrated. I mean. At the micro level, I I have I work in a practice where I get fantastic support from my colleagues. We meet every day at lunchtime. We we go over these difficult cases, and then everybody's briefed if that person turns up and you're not there. So I mean, having a lot of support in the practice is probably the key thing. I I've a lot of links in the community, you know, with all these different organisations, um, and you know some of the advocacy work that I've done with the with the GP with the Deep End Group. I've also recently taken up a post as a GP lead with the HSE under the new Slonchaker structures, um, which you know has been really interesting because one of the problems that many GPs have is the absolute lack of understanding of what it is that we do, um, and 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 of our voice not being heard, especially when decisions are made that affect us. Like, like the myriad forms that were handed and told to send here, there and everywhere. So it's actually been a real revelation to go to lots of meetings, which is not what GPs would instinctively want to be doing, but to, to put the GP voice there and to talk about how to make it easier for GPs to mix, to integrate with all these other systems that we're all trying to put together in a more coherent way. Because at the moment, certainly in terms of mental health and disability services, there is a sense of absolute disintegration around that. Um, and so, for example, as GP lead now, I'm I'm working on CHO9, which is Dublin, North County and City, is developing a, a single referral pathway for the HSE services. Now, my big dream before I retire is to see a single pathway for all families in distress. A one page, one place referral, but it won't be one page, but, you know, so that Everything is decided at, at a triage meeting to which everybody has signed up, including and at this at this current pathway that's been developed in, in North Dublin, it involves CAMS, disability services, primary care services, including primary care psychology. So when you've got that child that you don't you're not sure, is this autism, is it disability, what do they need primary care OT or do they maybe need to go to disability services, you will refer that child and the decision will be made and it will not be sent back to you with the suggestion to send it somewhere else. As of yet, it doesn't include all those NGOs and non-statutory services. That would be the absolute uh, pinnacle of my career if I managed to organise a, a common pathway for that. So, you know, so that, I, that I get a lot of satisfaction out of being in there talking to them about, well, I may have lost the bottle on the form, but things like making sure it goes on HealthLink, making it possible to email it from, uh, you know, telling them how a GP day, how a GP's day works, because they just don't get it. You know, everybody else has appointments. A lot of people don't understand the unplanned nature of a lot of our work. We do have appointments, but we've all these things that crop up. Um, and, you know, GPs have this reputation of being hard to reach, just like our patients sometimes. But, you know, that's because nobody understands how our days are working. So I, I'm finding it good 
to get in there and, and tell them all that stuff, whether they listen, whether they act. But so far, I've, you know, been pleasantly surprised by their interest in trying, because I do believe that COVID showed um, both the department and the HSE the value of GPs and what a critical part we are of the health service. The vast numbers of people that we see relative to the numbers seen in, in the other services um, and I think that it dawned on them that actually we're a pretty damn useful part of the health service and they're interested and the principles of Slauncher Care are about um, moving things to the community, hopefully not giving us more work necessarily, but making it easier for us to mix with all the other services. So that's, you know, that's given me a little bit of interest and a little bit of hope because, you know, some of the some of the advocacy you were asking me, how do I get by, you know, that advocacy and working at a more structural level gives me a feeling of, of, of being able to impact change maybe a bit more than, you know, because it is so it's so demoralizing when you when you especially, you know, I, I find it so hard when I find a teenager that's really in trouble. Um, and I saw it coming so many times and I sought a service that I couldn't get. Um, you know that that is very very demoralizing. So it is important to feel that that, that there will be some improvement and some change, because that's what gets you up and out the door every morning, isn't it? Well, yeah. I yeah. mean, making a difference mm. is what it's all about, you know. And you really want you really want to feel that you're doing that. Um, and you know, I mean, we have, and over the years, you know, what I have found is that you know, as a GP, we're because we're kind of sole traders and we're not in, we're not involved in the HSE services you tend to not know necessarily everything that's going on. But in an area like mine, you won't survive if you don't find out what other things are there to support your patients because you can't manage it. And so over the years, I've got have had involvement with lots and lots of different community services. Like we are on speed dial with our local social prescribers now, and they're fantastic. You know, so all of those things um, make a difference. And, and that's that's what you, you, you want to you want to do the best for your patients, because when you do the best for your patients, that's what's best for you in the long run, because you go home at the end of the day not feeling quite so. Um, you know, burned out from from all the things you've you've had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned the deep end group earlier. We're not going to have time to talk about that today, so I'll have to to come back to that in a, in another podcast uh, episode later at some stage. Dr. Edel McGinnity, thanks so much for giving me this brief but a very illuminating insight into your work here in Mulholland at the Riverside Medical Centre. Remember, we have new episodes coming regularly on GP Works and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is the podcast of the ICGP. Find out more about us at icgp.ie. I'm Aileen Amara and thanks for listening.